So this is John 19:16 through 42. So he delivered him over to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the Place of the Skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write, The King of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am King of the Jews. But Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross for the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first, and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also might believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the pieces, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there is a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation... Since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, let's pray. Father, this morning we come before you and under the authority of your word, and we ask that you would 
use this story to speak truth to our hearts and our lives as we reflect this morning on Jesus dying on the cross, on the crucifixion. We ask that by your grace and by the power of your spirit, you would give us the ability to see truly with eyes of faith who Jesus is and why Jesus came and why his death makes all the difference for our lives. And we ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. We've been going through John's gospel since January, and the text that Tim just read for us obviously is about the death of Jesus Christ. The death of Jesus Christ was completely unexpected by all of his followers. Unexpected events are things that typically get our attention. In fact, that's a basic concept in communication, for instance. The most basic way to get someone's attention is to break a pattern or to say something unexpected. Here's an example of that. Some of you might travel regularly on airplanes, and one thing that I'm convinced no one ever pays any attention to are the in-flight announcements that the stewardess gives, right? At the beginning of an airplane trip, people are on their phones, people are playing games on their iPad, people are fiddling with whatever, they're trying to get their luggage in a row, they're trying to change seats to a more comfortable spot, but the last thing they're doing is listening to the instructions. And so sometimes flight attendants have to break patterns. Listen to what one flight attendant named Karen Wood said on a recent flight from Dallas to San Diego. She said this, if I could have your attention for a few moments, we would sure love to point out some of these safety features. If you haven't been in an automobile since 1965, the proper way to fasten your seatbelt is to slide the flat end into the buckle. To unfasten, lift up on the buckle and it will release. And as the song goes, there might be 50 ways to leave your lover, but there are only six ways to leave this aircraft. Two forward exit doors, two overwing removable window exits, and two aft exit doors. The location of each exit is clearly marked with signs overhead, as well as red and white disco lights along the floor of the aisle. Made you look. That's uh, intended by flight attendants to get people's attention, to get them to actually listen to what they're saying. As a preacher, I can appreciate the idea of breaking patterns to get people to listen to what you're trying to say. Jesus's death breaks the pattern of expectation that anyone who were friends with Jesus would have had way back in the first century. Jesus's death is intended to get our attention because it's the last thing that anyone expected of a king of the king of the world, of the Messiah. It was something that was shocking and surprising. And that's what we want to take a few minutes to study this morning. And fundamentally, we want to ask and hopefully answer this question. What does the death of Jesus on the cross mean? What does it mean for you and what does it mean for me? Now, we're in the very final sections of John's gospel. Last week, we saw that Jesus was arrested He is tried and convicted as a criminal of the state. And here in John 19, he is executed through crucifixion. And then next week, we're going to look at the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And then the following week, we'll conclude John by looking at his final appearances after he had been raised from the dead, before he ascended into heaven. But today, the crucifixion. And so let me summarize the main idea like this. Jesus finishes the work that God sent him to accomplish in his death on the cross. That's the idea. Jesus finishes the work God sent him to accomplish in his death on the cross. And I want to break this story into three parts. The man on the cross, the method of the cross, and then lastly, 
the meaning of the cross. The man, the method, the meaning. I worked really hard to get all those to start with the same letter. So write them down. Alliteration. The man on the cross is the first point. Throughout John, if we, as we've studied together, we'll, we've seen again and again that Jesus is someone that made radical claims about himself. I don't think whether you're a believer or not a believer or unsure what you are spiritually, I don't think that's something that anyone can deny if you read through John's gospel. Jesus says things about himself that normal people don't say about themselves. Last week, we saw that he said he is I am, which is the Old Testament name for God himself. He said, just as a few other examples, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. I doubt that any of you have ever said that during a dinner party. I'm the bread of life. Jesus said it though. Jesus said, whoever believes in me out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, all of those statements tell us something significant about Jesus. Jesus saw himself very evidently as God. John and the other Gospels present Jesus as the final authoritative revelation of the real and the only God. And so Christianity has always taught that Jesus is God. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that Jesus came into the world and basically said, I am the king. I am the king and I deserve your full allegiance. I deserve all of your worship. This entire universe rotates, not around you, this entire universe rotates around me. So Jesus very clearly saw himself as the king and ruler of the universe, and yet here in John 19, he's crucified. He's murdered. He's hung on a cross after his arrest. Surely his disciples expected him to somehow get out of it at the last minute. But John, who was an eyewitness to the crucifixion, which we read about in these verses, tells us in very matter-of-fact language that Jesus was executed via crucifixion outside of Jerusalem in about 32 AD. Now that's something that's completely counterintuitive and completely upside down from what we would expect. It's the surprise of surprises. Nothing could be more shocking to a first century Jewish person especially than that the king, the Messiah, is going to be put to death on a cross. But that's what Christianity teaches. That's what John records for us here. And it's very important for you to understand that the cross is not a repudiation of Jesus' kingship. Rather, the cross is the revelation of the kingship of Jesus. And we see this in the way John tells the story. If you noticed, as Tim was reading, Pilate has an inscription nailed on top of the cross in verse 19 that said, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And the religious people, the Jewish religious authorities saw that and they said, oh, come on. No, 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 no. Take that down. Okay, don't take it down, but at least edit it so that it says, this man said he was the king of Jews. Verse 21, you see that. But Pilate refuses, and in verse 21 says, what I have written, I have written. Now, there's a ton of irony here. For one, Pilate, for the first time in his life, actually stands up to the Jewish authorities here. He hadn't done it previously, but he does it here and unwittingly confirms what is actually true, that Jesus is the king. 
And notice also that this inscription was written in three languages. Aramaic, which was the language of the people. Latin, which was the language of the empire. And Greek, which was the language of the scholar. And John tells us that Jesus was hung near the city, verse 20, so that many of the people saw what was happening. Why does John add all of these details? Well, here's what's happening. John is showing us again that even in his death, through these ironic moments and details, God is showing the world that Jesus, this man hanging on a cross, condemned as a criminal, really is the king. Pilate, in a way, is the very first evangelist. And the sign on the cross is the very first written testimony of the gospel given to the nations. One theologian says this, At the moment of his crucifixion, Jesus is proclaimed as king to the entire world. Here's what we've seen throughout John. In every chapter of John, the main question that you are being asked And that John wants you to answer is, what do you think about Jesus? Who is Jesus for you? Here John tells us that Jesus is the crucified king. Jesus is a king who was willing to give his life to save his subjects. Can you see Jesus for who he really is? I'm going to ask you that again right now as I've done every week in John. Because John has an agenda for you. John has an evangelistic intent. John is not just some neutral observer of these events. John tells us that he wrote these things so that you may believe. That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you may have life in his name. Here's the truth. Jesus is your king. Whether you acknowledge him as such right now or not, it doesn't change the truth. Jesus is your king. And Jesus deserves your life's worship and work. Your world should revolve around Jesus, not around yourself. And in fact, that's the way that you were designed as a human. Humans operate correctly, so to speak, when they center their lives on Jesus. So will you do that? Will you turn away from your self-centered existence and through faith in Jesus, center your life on King Jesus? Because he is worthy of it. He deserves all that you have and all that you are. And interestingly enough, that's also the best possible life for you to live. The man on the cross is the king on the cross. He's your king. Second, I want us to focus briefly on the method of the cross. That is, Jesus was killed by crucifixion. Now, if you notice... The actual account or telling of the crucifixion in all four Gospels is described with great reserve. In verse 18, it's just four words. There they crucified him. But the method is significant. In Galatians chapter 3, the apostle tells us, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And that's quoting from the Old Testament. So there's something significant about crucifixion. Here's the question. Why did Jesus die by crucifixion? Why not a clean death, so to speak, as the electric chair or lethal injection are intended to be? If you're going to crucify someone, why not just make it easier? 
Well, the reason is because the method of Jesus' death helps us understand the meaning of Jesus' death. And here's how. Crucifixion was primarily designed to dehumanize and shame the victim. Death on a cross, you see, was a death only reserved for the lowest of criminals. That's why Paul in Philippians chapter 2, when he's writing about Jesus, says that Jesus humbled himself to death, even death on a cross, as if that's a more significant way to humble oneself. So the manner of death by crucifixion has, it has a special stigma attached to it. It's particularly degrading and shameful. It's really hard for us 2,000 years later to particularly appreciate that idea because the cross has become such a ubiquitous religious symbol. We see it everywhere. Some of us might have it on our jewelry right now. Maybe an analogy from more modern times would help. Um, About 20 years ago, it was 20 years ago, in 1998, a man named Matthew Shepard, some of you will probably remember this story, who was a homosexual man who lived in Laramie, Wyoming, was um, captured and beaten within an inch of his life, by two other men. And and then Matthew Shepard was tied to a fence in the winter and abandoned. And uh, 18 hours later, in nearly freezing weather, a passerby discovered his body and for a moment mistook it for a scarecrow. And, And eventually realized that he was a person and they got him off of the fence post and took him to the hospital where he died five days later having never regained consciousness. And uh, the particular cruelty of that death left people groping for words. And uh, in the New York Times, one journalist wrote, there is incredible symbolism in being tied to a fence. People have likened it to a scarecrow, but it sounded more like a crucifixion. You see, the similarity is on the dehumanizing of the victim. Why does it matter that Jesus died in such a shameful way? Here's why. Because the method of crucifixion is intended to tell the world, this is the death of a nobody. In the Rwandan genocides some decades ago, the the Hutus would often call the Tutsi victims cockroaches. An effort to dehumanize them and make them seen as something less than image bearers of God. The point is, Powerful people don't get crucified. Important people don't get crucified. It's the most dishonorable, the most shameful, the most emotionally stigmatizing way to die. And that was the entire point of the crucifixion. Jesus' death on a cross shows us That in his death, he is identifying with the lowest of the world, with the shamed, with the forgotten. You need to understand the power of that truth. The Son of God at the cross entered into solidarity with the least of all creation, with the nameless, with the scum of the earth. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was murdered by the Nazis during World War II, because he was a part of a plot to overthrow Adolf Hitler. So he was a spy, but he was also an incredible Christian theologian. Two weeks before he's put to death in prison, 
he writes this. God lets himself be pushed out of the world onto the cross. Christ is weak and powerless in the world, and that is precisely the way, the only way, in which he is with us and helps us. So when we say that Jesus Christ took upon himself the sin of the world, it means, quite specifically, that Jesus suffered the shame and the degradation that human beings have inflicted on one another and that he, above all others, had done nothing to merit. Jesus died, and in particular, Jesus was crucified, really as one grotesque testimony to the ravages of sin in this world and in each of our lives. The crucifixion of Jesus shows us in in savage relief the horror and the pain and the torment that sin really does cause in our lives. Fleming Rutledge, another theologian, says this, Jesus was crucified because no other mode of execution would have been commensurate with the extremity of humanity's condition under sin. The hideousness of the crucifixion summons us to put away sentimentality and face up to the ugliness that lies just under the surface. Let me summarize all this. Here's the point of why Jesus was put on a cross. Jesus was put on a cross to show you what your sin does. Jesus was put on a cross, in a sense, to ask you to consider the gravity, the weight of sin. Because participation in Christ means abandoning all of these pretenses that you really are pretty much a decent person. Because that's required to know and love the gospel. It's it's asking you to reckon with the reality of of evil and and sin in this world and in your life. The, The cross forces you to openly acknowledge your identity as a sinner a rebel against God in bondage, and in the same moment to realize that the victory is ours in Jesus, who won the victory by dying to save us. So when you look at the cross, you always say that the cross is what my sin earns. The cross is what my sin deserves. That is the shame that my sin causes. That is the wounding that my sin brings. That is the wreckage that my sin leaves in its wake. That's the reality of my heart and the reality of my world. But Jesus takes all of that so that you don't have to. So let's talk third about the meaning. The meaning of the cross. We've seen the man on the cross, the method of the cross, now the meaning. There's so many ways to approach the meaning of the cross. and In a a way, that's what the entire Bible is about. Every single chapter in the Bible is in one way or another telling us the meaning of the cross. And so in a sense, it's what we do every week when we study the scripture together. But today I want to think about the meaning of the cross uh, through the prism of Jesus's final word there in verse 30, where he says, it is finished. And John tells us that Jesus bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Why does Jesus say that? What is finished? Why does John use this phrase in particular to help us as readers understand the meaning of the cross? Okay, quickly, three things. Three things that are finished in the cross, finished in the death of Jesus, and then we're done. So stick with me. Three things. First, the promises of the Bible, the promises of the scripture are finished in the cross. That is, they're all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. 
Did you notice as Tim read how often John quotes from the Old Testament in these verses? He says repeatedly, this happened to fulfill Scripture. Scripture in that day was the Old Testament. So this happened to fulfill prophecies that were made centuries prior to this moment. So just in one instance, look in verse 28. Jesus is on the cross, and it says, John tells us, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, and then parenthesis, to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. Now, it's not like Jesus is sitting on the cross thinking, okay, what else do I have to do to fulfill all the scripture? Okay, I'm thirsty. No, he's thirsty because he's a real human being being crucified. But it's also an instance in which the prophecies of Jesus's death are being fulfilled. In particular, Psalm 22 verse 15 is being fulfilled here, which says, my mouth is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Or more generally, Isaiah 53 is being fulfilled. I've got that on the wall. Read it with me. Not out loud. (laughs) But surely he has taken our sicknesses and he has carried our diseases. Yet we thought he was stricken and struck down by God, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every single one of us to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So what that teaches us is that everything in the Bible, really everything in the history of the universe, points to this moment. It points to the pinnacle of human history, which is the death and resurrection of Jesus. So if you want to understand the Bible, if you want to understand the story of the world and the story of your own life, you need to look to the death of Jesus because it's all leading up to him. The scriptures are finished and completed in his death. Secondly, the establishment of the church is finished. I think that's what's happening there in verses 26 and 27. Here Jesus is on the cross, we read, and he sees his mother Mary and the disciple whom he loved. That's John, by the way, that's John referring to himself. So he sees Mary and he sees John and he says, Woman, behold your son. And then 27, then he said to John, Behold your mother. Now, this is not just Jesus saying, please take care of each other after I'm gone. It certainly is that, but I think it's more. It's Jesus establishing a new people group, a new family that's united to one another in love and in faith through Jesus Christ. This is the foundation of the church. That's why we read in Ephesians chapter 2 that the foundation and the chief cornerstone of the church is Jesus Christ himself, particularly his death and resurrection. You can also potentially see the establishment of the church in verse 34. If you look there, we read that one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with the spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Now, people have spent gallons of ink trying to figure out what that means exactly. And I think it can have multiple meanings. For one, it means likely that Jesus really is dead. You medical doctors can figure that one out for me. I'm not going to get into the medical reasons. But there's also a symbolic theological thing going on here, in my opinion. And that is, the blood and the water can be seen as representing the two sacraments of the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper, or the outpouring of the Holy Spirit via water, which is something, an illustration that's often used of the Holy Spirit. So we can see there as well that In Jesus' death, the foundation of the corporate life and worship of God's people is being established. So what is finished? 
The scriptures are finished and completed. The church is finished and grounded. And then finally, and most importantly, the redemption of the world. The redemption of the world is finished in Jesus' death. Here's the truth. Jesus came into the world from God to rescue people out of hell and death and sin. And Jesus did that by dying on the cross to pay the penalty that sin earns. And in this way, he offers forgiveness to anyone who will hear this message and believe it. So the good news of the gospel founded on Jesus' death, is that you and I don't have to pay off the debt that we owe God because of our rebellion against him. We could never do that. So God, out of his love, sends Jesus, his son, to do that for us. So Jesus does, Jesus finishes what we can never do, what we can never finish. We receive this finished work of Jesus Christ by believing that Jesus has done this for us. That's what the Bible calls faith. So the death of Jesus is an act of God's grace in forgiving human sin that we receive and accept simply by trusting. That's the gospel. And once for all, this forgiveness is given to us. It's forever secured and fixed by this simple act of faith, by plunging into Jesus in faith. The cross is saying that all that is necessary to be done to bring sinners back to a holy God, to forgive all of our guilt and our shame, to ensure that we will one day live and dwell with God forever in the kingdom of heaven, all that's necessary for that to take place has been fully and finally accomplished at the cross. And so the only thing that we are asked to do is not attempt to earn God's favor by trying to be nice little religious people. We can never do that. The only thing that we are called to do is to look to Jesus, to believe that his death satisfies the payment our sins deserve, and to rest in him with joy and with hope. That's what the cross means. The cross means you really are forgiven. The cross means that your guilt cannot catch you. The cross means that your shame will no longer cover you. The cross means you have a new identity. You are no longer seen by God the Father as one who deserves hell. By faith in Jesus, you are seen by God the Father as if you had never committed a single sin. You are seen by God the Father in exactly the way that God the Father sees Jesus. That's what the cross tells you. That's why we call the gospel not just news, but good news. It's good news because it means that your life can be forever transformed and changed as a result of trust in this act of Jesus' death. The Heidelberg Catechism is something some of you probably have never heard of. It's a 500-year-old document that is a series of questions and answers that summarizes what Christianity is about. And here's how I want us to close I want us to read together question and answer number 60 to the Heidelberg Catechism because it's one of the best summaries of the meaning of the cross that I can find anywhere. And so let me ask you to participate with me in this. I'm going to read the question, and then it should be on the wall behind us. We'll read the answer together out loud. So, Christians, how is it that you are righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. In spite of the fact that my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all the commandments of God 
and have not really kept any one of them, and that I am still ever prone to all that is evil. Nevertheless, God, without any merit of my own, out of pure grace, grants me the benefits of the perfect expiation of Christ, imputing to me his righteousness and holiness, as if I had never committed a single sin or had ever been sinful, and as if I had fulfilled myself all the obedience which Christ has carried out for me. If only I accept such favor with a trusting heart. Amen. So the death of Jesus was one of the great unexpected events in world history. No one would have predicted that the king of the world would show his kingship by dying. But it's actually also the most merciful event in world history. No one can predict or measure the depth of God's love seen in the death of Jesus to forgive us. Let's pray.